0: Welcome back to TanakhCast. This is episode 199. We'll begin the Book of Job with a brief summary of chapters 1 through 3 and follow with some thoughts about mountains and memorials. If we learned one thing about the Tanakh so far, it would be its worldview, which could be summed up in two statements. One, idolatry is bad, and two, the righteous get rewarded while the wicked get punished. This second point or idea or doctrine started arguably in the book of Deuteronomy, where God speaks of God's love for Israel and how God wishes to reward them for keeping God's laws, but that God will surely smite them if they fall short, and periodically there are challenges to this doctrine. The book of Ezekiel affirms that one who sins pays the price, but he also says, What do you mean by quoting this proverb upon the soil of Israel? Parents eat sour grapes, and their children's teeth are blunted. As I live, declares Adonai, this proverb shall no longer be current among you in Israel. And I don't want to get into how this doctrine went down in medieval times because the debate about it was convoluted yet fierce. But... One need not read ahead to Maimonides or Yosef Albo for a spicy take. The Tanakh offers up one in the form of the Book of Job, which is basically a book-length assault on that doctrine. I never learned the Book of Job in the context of my classical Jewish upbringing, probably for this reason, but for years I was tasked with teaching it in middle school. I can't think of a more inappropriate mix of content and kids, but Anywho, the Book of Job probably shouldn't belong in the Tanakh. It's the only work of its kind in the anthology, a raging debate in verse, challenging the very premise of the Tanakhic worldview. And yet, we have archaeological evidence going back to at least the 2nd century BCE that it, or extensive fragments of it, was regarded as canon, or at least worthy of canon by the sectarians at Qumran in the Dead Sea. We have no idea who wrote Job. We can assume from the richness of the Hebrew poetry that it was not translated into Hebrew from another language, but for a Hebrew text, it has a surprisingly universalist perspective. No one in the story is identified as Jewish, but all are worshipers of Adonai. There is no discussion about the covenant or God's special relationship with the Jewish people or anything remotely related to the history of Israel. We have no idea when Job was written. The frame story, that is chapters 1 and 2, which set up the story and chapter 42, which resolves it, is probably a folktale that was in wide circulation in the ancient Near East. The language it uses suggests late biblical Hebrew or perhaps early first temple period Hebrew, but the poetry beginning in chapter 3 borrows a lot from Aramaic, which suggests the poet who will call Job probably heard a lot of Aramaic in the course of his day and probably spoke it fluently along with Hebrew, which would put Job sometime in the 5th or perhaps the 6th century BCE. We'll get into the weird disjunctures between the frame story, the poetry, and the theology as we work our way through the book, but one could argue, and many scholars have made this argument, that the frame story, the old folk tale, was just a pretext to get into the poetic debate about theodicy, that is, how an all-powerful God can allow evil to exist in God's created world. So, let's get into the debate. Chapter one begins like any good fable. Quote, a man there was in the land of Oz. Toto, I have a feeling we're not in Kansas anymore. Iyov is his name, and the man was blameless and upright and feared God and shunned evil. Eov had everything, a perfect family, and abundant wealth. Eov was keenly aware of his good fortune and acted resolutely to preserve his status. While his kids partied through the night, he slept, but he would get up early each morning and near offer on behalf of his children because, quote, Job thought, perhaps my sons have offended and cursed God in their hearts. Thus would Job do at all times. Cut to heaven. God's Assembly Hall, where all the sons of God stand in attendance, including the adversary, otherwise known as Satan. After a little chit-chat between God and Satan, conversation meanders over to Eov, and God observes, "...have you paid heed to my servant Job? For there is none like him on earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and shuns evil." Which provokes the adversary who argues that the only reason Eov is blameless and upright is because, quote, have you not hedged him about and his household and all that he has all around? The work of his hands you have blessed and his flocks have spread over the land. And yet reach out your hand, pray, and strike all he has. Will he not curse you to your face? And so the bet is on and the terms are clear. The adversary can take all of Eov's stuff but not harm him physically. And so, within nine verses, Eov is systematically stripped of all of his wealth and his children. It's not clear who did the stripping, God or the adversary. But nonetheless, Eov responds by rending his garment, shaving his head, and collapsing on the ground. He says, quote, Naked came I out of my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. Adonai has given, and Adonai has taken. May Adonai's name be blessed. More importantly, quote, with all this, Job did not offend, nor did he put blame on God. Cut again to heaven, God's assembly hall, yada yada yada. God is chuffed to recount to the adversary how Eov has remained faithful and how, quote, you incited me against him to destroy him for nothing. The adversary, however, is ready with a comeback. Quote, skin for skin, a man will give all he has for his own life. Yet reach out, pray, your hand, and strike his bone and his flesh. Will he not curse you to your face? And so again, the bet is on, and the terms are clear. The adversary can do whatever he likes to Eov's body, but he cannot kill him. And so again, Eov is stricken, this time with a burning rash all over his body. Eov is still in mourning, but now he's sitting in ashes, scratching himself with a shard of pottery. His unnamed wife, seeing him in such an abject state, tells him to curse God already and die, to which he responds, quote, You speak as one of the base women would speak. Shall we accept good from God, too, and evil we shall not accept? Nevertheless, quote, with all this, Job did not offend with his lips. Word spreads of Eov's suffering, and three of his friends come to console him. Eliphaz the Tamanite, Bildad the Shu'ite, and Zophar the Naamatite. They do not recognize their friend in his reduced state. They too tear their garments, apply dust on their heads, and take up their places next to him on the ground and sit in silence for seven days and nights. They do not speak until Eov is ready, and when chapter 3 begins, Eov has a lot to say. Quote, Afterward Job opened his mouth and cursed his day. And Job spoke up, and he said, Annul the day that I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. That day let it be darkness, let God above not seek it out, nor brightness shine upon it. Let darkness, death's shadow, foul it. Let a cloud mass rest upon it, let day gloom dismay it. That night, let murk overtake it. Let it not join in the days of the year, let it not enter the number of months." This Death Wish poem is a stellar example of biblical poetry, where the first verse of the line is intensified, heightened, focused, concretized in the second verse. He is suffering, and the only remedy is non-existence. He wants to wipe out not just the event of his birth in the first verse, but going back nine months and moving from day to night, his very conception evoked in the second verse. The mention of night then triggers a long chain of images of night and darkness, each deepening the effect of the ones that precede it. And you can't intensify or heighten or focus or concretize without a rich trove of synonyms to muster, as Iov does here with Choshech, darkness, and Salmavit, death's shadow, Anana, cloud mass, the unique Merire Yom, day gloom, or perhaps eclipse, Ophel, murk, and a series of verbs that indicate a befouling, obscuring, or shutting down of light. He then rails against those that took care of him as a baby, Quote, Why did knees welcome me? Why breasts that I should suck? For now I would lie and be still, would sleep, and no repose. Death is the great equalizer, but also the best balm for this suffering. But for Iov, the greatest aspect of his suffering is his seeming abandonment. Quote, to a man whose way is hidden, and God has hedged him about. For before my bread my moaning comes, and my roar pours out like water. For I feared a thing, it befell me, what I dreaded came upon me. I was not quiet, I was not still, I had no repose, and trouble came. And for Eov, the trouble will only grow when his friend Eliphaz responds in the next episode. During my graduate school years in Israel, I spent the summers leading tours for NIFTI, the Reform Movement's youth movement. Back in the days before birthright, NIFTI brought dozens of busloads of kids to Europe and Israel, and I was charged with providing the educational content of making sense and a story of what the kids saw and experienced. On Mount Herzl, Besides introducing the kids to Theodore Herzl, I helped them process the countless rows of humble headstones memorializing the fallen in Israel's many wars. Any national cemetery is a memorial space, an active participant in the production of the nation's historical narrative. In Israel's case, the cemetery, which is traditionally a religious space, had to be reinterpreted into secular national terms. A new kind of sacred space. Mount Herzl would represent not only placing of Herzl at the center of Zionism's story, but connecting it with the sacrifice of fallen soldiers in Israeli wars and the veneration of the greats of the nation. Theodor Herzl, the father of modern Zionism, died in 1904. He was buried in Vienna. Echoing the request of Jacob and Joseph to have their bones transferred from Egypt to the land of Israel, Herzl, too, asked for a similar repatriation in his will. Even before the War of Independence officially ended, but its outcome was evident, it was decided to transfer the remains of Herzl from Austria to Israel. A committee was struck to bring Herzl home. There were eight different options, various existing cemeteries, but two criteria seemed crucial. The land had to be Jewish-owned and beyond the range of Jordanian artillery. The committee settled on a hilltop near Beit Vagan, which rose 834 meters above sea level. It was the highest point in Jewish West Jerusalem. Herzl was reinterred in 1949, and his gravestone, designed by the same architect of the Knesset building, was dedicated in 1960, marking Herzl's centenary. The final shape was a 16-ton rectangular block of black stone with the name Herzl inscribed on its side in gold letters. In the same year of Herzl's interment, a decision was made to locate Jerusalem's military cemetery on Mount Herzl's slopes. The design of gravestones, which was the same for all military cemeteries, emphasized the place of the military cemetery at Mount Herzl within the national network of military cemeteries and military burial areas within civilian cemeteries that emerged in the 1950s. Built on the slopes of a hill, however, the structure of terraces distinguished the architecture of this particular cemetery from all the other military cemeteries in Israel. Conceived originally as the final resting place for the fallen of the Israeli War of Independence, the burial area was later extended to include the fallen of later Israeli wars. The various plots and terraces within the military cemetery follow a thematic structure and provide a narrative account of Israeli military history, from the heroic sacrifices of the Jewish Yishuv against Nazi Germany and its allies up to the present moment. There was a third area designated on Mount Herzl for the greats of the nation, the most distinguished office holders, state presidents and prime ministers. And so when I led the many groups of teens to the site, we would pay our respects to Herzl and would make our way to the greats of the nation to visit the grave of Yitzhak Rabin, Israel's only assassinated prime minister. But we would also pause for a moment in the section where the fallen of Israel's first Lebanon war were buried. On the third day of Operation Peace in Galilee, June 8, 1982, Yuval Harel, a 19-year-old soldier in the Armored Corps, was killed by an anti-tank missile in Ein Al-Hilweh near Sidon. Because he grew up in Talpiot, a neighborhood in Jerusalem, he would be buried on Mount Herzl in the military cemetery. On Thursday, June 9, 1982, Miriam and Yehezkel, Yuval, the Armored Corps' parents, received word that their son had been killed in the war. What Miriam and Yechezkel didn't know that in the same neighborhood of Talpiot, there was another Harel family, Yossi and Chaya Harel, who also had a son named Yuval. The other Yuval served in the Nahal in Kibbutz Lochameh HaGetaot. He was also enlisted and he fought in Operation Peace for Galilee. The funeral was held on Friday at the Herzl Cemetery, and many of the other Yuval's friends also showed up. They came because the radio announced that Yuval Harel from Jerusalem was killed and they assumed it was their friend from the Nachal. The bereaved parents, Yehezkel and Miriam, noticed a lot of young people at the funeral that they didn't recognize and they wondered if perhaps the body was mistakenly identified. After a quick inquiry was made, it was determined that it was truly their son and the funeral proceeded. However, on the same day, June 10th, 1982, the other Yuval, son of Yossi and Chaya, was also killed in Lebanon. Yossi, Yuval's father, was serving as an intelligence officer and was driven home from Lebanon. At the same time, officers came to their house and told Chaya, Yossi's wife, the news about their son's death. Chaya assumed that the officers had been confused. She told them that a Yuval Harel had been killed, but it wasn't her son. It was Miriam and Yehezkel's son. She referred them to a house on the other side of the neighborhood, but they told her that it was no mistake that their Yuval Harel had also been killed. After hearing the news, Yossi and Chaya's friends, Maggie and Shalom Bashar, arrived at their house. Their son, Sefi, served together with Yossi and Chaya's Yuval. The two had grown up together and joined the Nachal together. When they heard that Yuval Harel from the Nachal had been killed, they came to Yossi and Chaya's house to be with them. Maggie thought that it might have been a mistake, for how could Yuval be killed without their son Sefi or someone else letting them know? What they didn't know was that Sefi had also been killed. Yossi Harel, who was an intelligence officer, was in contact with the city officers. That very same day, he was given word that Sefi was also killed, but he couldn't tell Maggie and Shalom anything because they hadn't been notified yet. And so Maggie and Shalom sat with their mourning friends, Yossi and Chaya Harel, when the Harels knew that Sefi was no longer alive, but they couldn't tell Maggie and Shalom. Yuval's funeral was also to be held on Sunday, and that morning the officers were given the official notification that Sefi was killed and went to tell Maggie and Shalom the news. Yossi har tells that that very morning, the officers tried to find Maggie and Shalom but couldn't find them. Yossi told the officers that they could find Maggie and Shalom at Yuval's funeral. At the funeral, the officers approached Yossi har and asked him to point out Sefi's parents. The officers approached Maggie and Shalom and asked to talk to them privately for a minute, where they were told about their son's death. I won't ever forget their cries, Yossi said. Maggie and Shalom wouldn't leave the funeral and insisted on staying with Yossi and Chaya. At the funeral, the mourning parents, the Harels, and the Bashars walked together. At the end of the funeral, Maggie, the newly bereaved mother, invited everyone to her son's funeral on the the next day. On that very same day, 16 other funerals were held at the Mount Herzl cemetery. Maggie Bashar approached the person in charge and asked him to skip over one grave, the one next to Yuval, and to leave it for her son. The next day, Sefi's funeral was held and he was buried next to his friend Yuval. Their story was memorialized by the poet Emmanuel Zabar in Covenant of Blood, which evokes our portion in Job, Specifically that moment when Iov reels from the news which comes to him in waves, and later responds with a curse that has echoed through the centuries, quote, and in the divine assembly and in the earthly assembly, one is still talking and the other one arrives, that night let darkness take it, that night came. Spread the word about TanakhCast. Tell a friend about TanakhCast over coffee. Send another friend an email or text. Nothing fancy. Help your aunt who just got her first smartphone to download a podcatcher and subscribe to TanakhCast. And if you have a spare moment after all that, write a brief glowing review at Apple Podcasts. Apparently it helps people who might be interested in a little Bible learning via this podcast. And it's also a nice thing to do. If you want to help in an even bigger way, support us at Patreon. Just search for TanakhCast at Patreon.com and pledge your shekels either on a one-time or monthly basis and receive special blessings from the Most High. I thank you in advance for that and encourage you to join us again in two weeks for... Episode 200, when we continue in the Book of Job with chapters 4 through 7.